Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, we celebrate Halloween with a nuclear fright house. <laughs> Activists weighing in on what scares them most about nuclear, and then some of the scariest excerpts from the recent community symposium on decommissioning San Onofre, which was held in San Clemente, California, on October 19. We hear from Dr. Arjun Makajani, Dr. Marvin Reznikoff, and Dr. Don Mosier as they tell us, exactly what we're facing. That will be coming up in just a few minutes, plus numbnuts of the week, the radiation protection tip, activist shout-out, Ginsu knives, and so much more. Today is Tuesday, October 29th, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Last Friday, 7.3 earthquake off the coast of Japan, meaning off the coast of Fukushima, passed with only a small tsunami that made no appreciable difference. However, even though TEPCO and the Japanese government are assuring us that nothing went wrong at Fukushima, there are indications that there were problems. According to an update by Remy Chevalier, who is with the group Politis France, the Japanese government and TEPCO ordered the total and immediate evacuation of the damaged plant in the wake of the earthquake. He said that the correspondent for Politis in the region says the cooling pool was destabilized and threatened to collapse quickly, though we've had no independent corroboration of that story. Observers have reported an increase of radioactivity in the area of the plant and its immediate vicinity. Nuclear expert Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education said, I don't believe that what Tokyo Electric said is true, he meant after the 7.3 earthquake. They said, don't worry, be happy, everything is fine. There's some indications of a problem in Unit 1 where the hydrogen gas started to increase after the accident. It's still not at explosive levels, but it's gone up dramatically. Arnie went on to say, I'm sure that components that were already damaged fell. They'll go back in the building, and things that were hanging on the ceiling have now fallen on the floor. They're going to see damaged components get more damaged. The New York Times has been doing a great job of covering Fukushima, and they did a roundup on the effects on the ocean. This appeared on October 24th. Among their reporting, they said, Scientists say there are worrisome problems that may be the result of new leaks. TEPCO says the source of the increased contamination appears to be highly radioactive water that has been trapped since the accident in conduits around the reactor buildings and had slowly found its way out. Blair Thornton, associate professor at University of Tokyo's Underwater Technology Research Institute, says hotspots are spreading across at least 150 square miles of the ocean bottom. The fact that radiation levels are still up to hundreds of times as high as they are in other areas of the seafloor raises the possibility that the spots are being blanketed in new contamination from the plant. And Jota Kanda, an oceanographer at Tokyo University of Marine Science and Technology, said, Obviously, there is some continuing source of cesium-137, we are not sure exactly what is happening, but we are seeing a bigger-than-expected effect on the environment. When it comes to health, we've reported before on Nuclear Hot Seat as to how the information is not getting out. 
Doctors are not allowed to report, they're not allowed to examine patients, and patients are not allowed to complain about anything related to radiation. Yet word is getting out. A mother from Tokyo during a question-and-answer session at Cinema Forum Fukushima said, Have you ever read or heard any of the news that actually the symptoms are emerging in Japan? In Japan, it's really a total blackout of media, even though there are lots and lots of people who have been developing symptoms. That information itself cannot come out because of the control of the media and the doctors, like the Society of Medicine in Japan. It is denying even now that there have been health damages. Not a single person, Fukushima or anywhere in Japan, which is really absurd. The symptoms are happening. I want you to spread this information. For those who have difficulties wrapping their heads around the kind of contamination, disease, and symptoms that are showing up for human beings in Japan, maybe you can care about horses. 62-year-old horse breeder Tokui Hosakawa ignored a government order to exterminate all of his horses and cows after the Fukushima disaster. In January of this year, he noticed that several among the 30 that remained, mainly foals, had become unsteady on their feet. Within weeks, 16 had died in mysterious circumstances. Autopsies on four of the horses found no evidence of disease, and tests revealed cesium levels at 200 becquerels per kilogram, four times higher than the government-set safety limit for agricultural produce. Hosokawa's farm is within 40 kilometers, a little over 20 miles northwest of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Blood tests on the horses showed that the causes were neither infectious diseases nor parasitic worms, but the symptoms were all very similar. Once the horses became unable to walk, they died within several weeks. Hosokawa said, Japan becomes such a pathetic country. After the accidents, my family fell apart. My daughter tried to commit suicide. I am relieved that she survived. When I saw the foals, I entertained a flicker of hope. But even these foals died. There is no future. Nobody wants to live without a future. Here is Japan. Do you think it is really okay with this situation in Japan? When it comes to getting appropriate help at Fukushima Daiichi, TEPCO is one hot mess. The company's president, Naomi Hirose, acknowledged that TEPCO has been cutting costs and that the precarious state of the plant has contributed to the deterioration of the plant's operations. Is this cultural psychosis or just industry-wide psychosis? that thinks that the deterioration of the operations is completely unrelated to the fact that you've been cutting your funds to pay your workers. Speaking of which, TEPCO continues to have trouble recruiting capable workers. In the months following the accident, the company claimed to have secured 24,000 workers, but some 16,000 quit within months due to harsh working conditions and the fear of dangerous radiation levels. In past months, TEPCO officials denied that there was any shortage of workers, but today's admissions could mark a change because at least 12,000 workers are needed just to take the project through 2015, and there are currently just over 8,000. So what is TEPCO doing about it? They are having their subcontractors enslave people. Thousands of unemployed Japanese were tricked into working underpaid and highly dangerous jobs on the site of Fukushima's nuclear disaster. The Yakuza, meaning the Japanese mafia, act as enforcers who keep the nuclear slaves from complaining or leaving their jobs. Reuters reports that labor brokers resort to buying laborers by paying off their debts and then forcing them to work in hazardous conditions until their debts to the labor broker are paid off. Such employment schemes are commonly referred to as indentured servitude and are a form of slavery. 
TEPCO President Naomi Hirose explained that it is getting difficult for the utility to secure sufficient manpower at the plant and that it was grappling with tasks the company was not familiar with. You've had two and a half years to get used to it. You think you might be able to figure it out by now? Asked if the company may have to consider hiring foreign workers, TEPCO Vice President Zhengo Aizawa said, TEPCO is open to that idea, even though it's not an immediate option, meaning no one is holding their breath for people to volunteer to work in that place. That's why they've got the press gangs. Further news as to why one would not wish to voluntarily work at Fukushima. A 55-year-old man who worked at Fukushima Daiichi from July 2011 to October 2011 has filed a claim for workers' comp, the fourth case involving radiation nationwide. They're all pending. No one has been awarded anything yet. This man had operated heavy machinery, clearing rubble around the reactors, and had to leave the workplace after four months when his exposure exceeded the 50 millisieverts per year legal limit. He was diagnosed with bladder cancer in May of 2012, only eight months after he finished working there, and underwent an operation. Intestinal and stomach cancers were found in March of 2013. The cancer had not metastasized. Each one had originated separately in each organ. The man is currently undergoing chemotherapy. Meanwhile, Seventeen top world experts who are opposed to nuclear have sent a letter to Ban Ji Moon, Secretary General of the United Nations. They wrote, We write to you in urgency. It is clear that the situation at the Fukushima Daiichi reactor site is progressively deteriorating, not stabilizing. We write because of your personal interest in a sustainable future, but also because you are the executive for global organizations charged with protection of the public's health, public safety, and the common good when it comes to radioactivity, radiation, and nuclear technology. Together, we call upon you to act immediately to prevail upon international organizations and Japan to replace TEPCO with a worldwide engineering group to take charge of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Appoint a group of experts, independent from either TEPCO or the IAEA, to advise the new engineering group to establish a risk-informed stabilization, containment, and remediation plan for Fukushima. Create a well-funded oversight panel of local citizens and local elected officials to ensure transparency and accountability of both of the above groups, as well as to facilitate well-informed self-determination and further recovery of the impacted populations. Further down, they write, We have broader concerns about radiological accounting and regulation that the United Nations agencies, such as the World Health Organization, International Atomic Energy Agency, and United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation have already engaged in. With regard to the Fukushima nuclear disaster, other UN agencies, like the High Commission on Human Rights, have recognized how this accounting is not serving humanity. They went on to say, Any projections of total cancers or deaths from the Fukushima disaster is premature and any previous publications need to be viewed as speculative at best. It is clear now that the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster is far from over, and that there can be no credible estimate of total environmental or human health impacts because the radiological release has not ceased and the outcomes from exposing large populations to low doses over a long time is unclear. A final estimation of the radiological release from Fukushima Daiichi of necessity lies in the future, perhaps the distant future. Therefore, it remains of utmost importance to monitor radioactivity and provide and increase protective measures to individuals and communities. This letter goes on for 15 separate points and is signed by, among others, Dr. Helen Caldicott, Alexei Yablokov, 
Arnie Gunderson, S. Dave Freeman, Stephen Wing, and Stephen Starr. No word yet on Ban Ji-moon or the UN and their response to this letter. In the meantime, Harry Wasserman's petition in support of this call to action by the entire world on Fukushima has now received 105,000 signatures and will be delivered to the United Nations on November 7th, which is the day before TEPCO has promised to start removing the fuel rods from spent fuel pool 4. You can still sign on to this petition by going to nukefree.org. So what is Japan's genocidal Pinocchio, Prime Minister Abe Baby, doing with all of this action going on to bring attention to Fukushima Daiichi? He and his government are planning a state secrets act that critics say could curtail public access to information on a wide range of issues, including the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The new law would dramatically expand the definition of official secrets and journalists convicted under it could be jailed for up to five years. What some people won't do to keep the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Tadaki Muto, a lawyer and member of a task force on the bill at the Japan Federation of Bar Associations, told Reuters, basically, This bill raises the possibility that the kind of information about which the public should be informed is kept secret eternally. Under the bill, the administrative branch can set the range of information that is kept secret at its own discretion. Media watchdogs fear the law would seriously hobble journalists' abilities to investigate official misdeeds and blunders, including the collusion between regulators and utilities that led to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. A probe by an independent parliamentary panel found that collusion between regulators and the nuclear power industry was a key factor in the failure to prevent the meltdowns. Sophia University's political science professor, Koichi Nakano, said, This may very well be Abe's true intention cover-up of mistaken state actions regarding the Fukushima disaster and or the necessity of nuclear power. Moving over to the North American side of the Pacific, Dr. Helen Caldicott, sometimes referred to as the goddess Athena incarnate, has this warning. She said, What people need to know in North America is that air masses of the northern and southern hemispheres do not mix at the equator, The high radiation doses, the plume of radiation traveling across the Pacific as I speak, is likely to hit the west coast of Canada and Oregon and Washington early next year. And then California will be impacted later in the year by this huge plume of radiation. But what I want to stress is, people don't know how to stop this. This is a global public health ongoing catastrophe, and no one is attending to it. You can't imagine a more deleterious situation in human terms. It's kind of like a science fiction story, but the scary thing is it's ongoing, and the Japanese government is lying about it. But really, Dr. Caldicott, tell us what you think. Don't hold back. Which brings us to this week's Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's not a week. This from the Nuclear Energy Institute and the World Nuclear Association. They are asking for papers to be presented at the World Nuclear Fuel Cycle 2014 Conference to be held April 8 through 10, 2014 in San Francisco. The objective of World Nuclear Fuel Cycle 2014 is to provide an international forum for the discussion of issues affecting the commercial nuclear fuel cycle with a focus on enhancing the economic competitiveness of the nuclear fuel cycle and nuclear energy. Mm -mm -mm. The hell with people, the hell with the environment, show us the money. You, yes you, are invited to submit 
one-page abstracts of papers addressing policy and commercial issues on all aspects of the commercial fuel cycle, including, but not limited to, the following areas. I won't read all of these, just the juicier ones. Prospects for new uranium production. I wonder what First Nations Marius Paul up in Saskatchewan or the Sierra Club's Robert Tohey in New Mexico would have to say about more uranium mining on native lands. And the outlook for currently stalled projects, meaning the ones we've had the common sense to get rid of. Efficiencies in plant management operations. It's simple. TEPCO's got it nailed. Pay less, cut costs, and get yourself slave labor. Nuclear materials transportation. Uh, isn't that illegal or impossible? Certainly it is when it comes to the waste. Speaking of which, spent fuel disposal issues. Guys, the only issue is there's no way to dispose of the stuff. So here's the thing. This World Nuclear Fuel Cycle 2014 event is going to be held April 8th through 10th. What perfect timing for us to organize. April 8th through 10th is conveniently situated less than one month after Fukushima's third anniversary, two weeks after the 35th anniversary of Three Mile Island, and two weeks before the 27th anniversary of Chernobyl. Plus, the Pacific Radiation Plume is scheduled to hit our beautiful shores at about the same time, bringing with it the dead and dying sea life. Mm-mm-mm. So come on, Occupy! Come on, gay community! And, of course, all of we anti-activist, back-to-the-landers, people who are caring about the future, let's see if we can figure something out. Because, let me tell you, World Nuclear Fuel Cycle 2014, there's a reason why you, yes you, are the... Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Just a little bit more news before our feature starts today. Vermont Yankee has announced that it will be shutting down as of August of 2014. Now we know the month that we're aiming for. Energy Corporation is still in the initial stages of planning to get into safe mode before decommissioning. <laughs> Can't do that with nuclear guys. No way to make it safe. However, this is what they're saying. And they do agree that it will take decades. Community action groups throughout the region say they don't think Energy Corp. has enough money to properly decommission and are worried about the plant letting go of skilled workers to control it. Deb Katz of the Citizens Awareness Network told ABC affiliate 22 News, We believe this jeopardizes the health and safety of the communities. Because when a corporation doesn't have enough money, it cuts corners. And this is a private corporation. It's not a utility, so there's no rate base to go back to. In Canada, a little bit of good news. Ontario Energy Minister Bob Chirelli confirmed that the province will not spend upwards of $26 billion on new nuclear reactors at the Darlington Station. Woohoo! Activists have also called on energy decision makers to come clean about plans to rebuild the existing four reactors at Darlington. They say that the cost has been vastly understated, the need overstated, and the alternatives ignored. Sounds like standard operating procedure for nuclear. But Canadian activists, good job. Way to go. And here's a piece of activist-generated good news that is a great idea. And just in time for TEPCO's planned attempt at dismantling the Fukushima spent fuel pool for fuel rods with the attendant radiation spikes, if not hemorrhages, that are sure to follow if they're allowed to get away with it. An activist group based on the West Coast has begun providing daily radiation readings for radio station KBOO-FM in Portland, Oregon. The readings, compiled from RadNet, as well as trusted information providers around the world, are run as a daily feature on the station's newscasts. It makes sense. Traffic, 
weather, radiation levels. The service began broadcasting on Friday, October 25th. Now, in just days, Tom Hartman of RT.com has begun taking those radiation readings from the group, which is known as RADCAST, and is incorporating the information into his daily news program. This is huge. Last summer at the Excellence in Journalism Conference, I spoke with representatives of the Weather Channel, Weather Nation, and AccuWeather, all providers of 24-7-365 weather information for broadcast news outlets. I talked with them about the need to carry radiation readings. The only one who responded said it was discussed in the office and rejected, and then asked to be taken off my mailing list. I think it's time to send out another email to this weather overground and let these people know that the trend has started and they can either lead, follow, or get out of the way. Meanwhile, we will have an interview with one of the RADCAST activists in two weeks on Nuclear Hot Seat. Time for this week's feature. In keeping with the spirit of Halloween... I wanted to create a bit of an audio, nuclear, spooky funhouse. Because let's face it, there is nothing scarier than nuclear. We'll start off slowly with a montage of activists from both coasts telling us what scares them most about nuclear. I'm Yves-Andre Laramay. I'm the chairperson of the Art and Art History Department at Pace University in New York City. I've been an anti-nuclear activist since 1980, and I care about the future. I care about future generations to come, and the fact that nuclear energy has been around for over 60 years, we don't have a plan for its waste that I have any confidence in, nor the country has any confidence in. I will fight this battle till the end. And what scares you most about nuclear? The damage to the genome. Hi, Libby. Patty Davis. Been working with San Onofre Safety, San Clemente Green, Rose, you know, all the groups here. The thing that scares me the most? Evacuation. I can't even imagine the day that the sirens actually go off for real. What? people would actually do. It's never been tried in the real world, and I just think that would be the disaster upon the disaster. I think it would be the most tragic catastrophe ever imagined. I can't imagine anybody getting out of here safely. I'm Martha Sullivan. I'm with the Coalition to Decommission San Onofre, and I think what scares me most about uh, nuclear is it's forever. My name is Nikki Bay. The most things I'm afraid about the nuclear power is um, people lost their homeland. So many people, like 140,000 people, are still unable to go back to their hometown in Japan. So I'm really, really um, afraid. Well, my name is Paul Gunter, and I'm with uh, Beyond Nuclear out of Tacoma Park, Maryland. And what scares me most about nuclear power is we're going to have to reincarnate back into activism to deal with things like nuclear waste, where, you know, we, we now know that uh, long after these nuclear power plants are closed and the last watt of electricity has been generated, there will be a toxic legacy and liability that will be passed on without any benefit only liability, and it's that liability for generations to come that scares me the most. This is Gary Hedrick, co-founder of San Clemente Green, and the scariest thing about the nuclear problem to me is the uncertainty. That's the scariest part. No one has any good answers for some serious problems, and uh, that's got me shaking in my boots. No tricks or treats here. I'm Myla Reason, and I'm living in the San Onofre danger zone. Even though the plant is closed, we've got all this nuclear waste. But what's scaring me right now most is the reactor cores in the Fukushima 4 pools because um, that's so unstable. The pools are the spent fuel pools are elevated, and we could have. A mega catastrophe if those reactors, reactor cores blow. Alice Slater, I'm with the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. 
And what scares me most about nuclear is that we're currently selling nuclear power plants to Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Algeria, and every nuclear power plant is a bomb factory. That's why what we're seeing with Iran, we're so worried because even though they have the legal right to enrich uranium, you just turn the screw one more time and you make bomb material. So I think it's totally scary that our government is spreading this evil technology around the planet and it's only going to come back to bite us. Hi, my name is Michelle Lee. I'm with the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, which is a watchdog of the nuclear power, commercial nuclear industry. And I'm also with uh, a group called FaZe, Public Health and Sustainable Energy. What scares me most about Indian Point, honestly, is that it's an old machine. And I don't care whether you're talking about a dishwasher or a NASA satellite. Once you get to the point where the machine is aged out, it goes. That's a basic engineering 101. You have most of the problems in machinery is either very early in, in its life when there are kinks or flaws exposed or when it ages and things start to break down. And there's simply no way to fix all the components of the plant or to even monitor them because you have hundreds of miles of buried components, literally. I'm Dan Farrell. I'm part of the San Onofre group, but I go back to Three Mile Island. Libby and I uh, both had uh, intense experiences, which were measurable on a human scale. We both thought we died. So uh, my uh, connection has gone back that far, and I've been active in the closing nuclear power plants uh, since 1988. Uh, what scares me most about nuclear is that people can't see it, smell it, or want to pay attention to it. So they leave with problems uh, with people that are more attuned to a, a catastrophic event like a power plant going south rather than a mitigation and a migration of radioactive particles. So I'm scared about the ignorance of the people that and let us be governed by people that put us in this recent mess about no money, no government, no nothing. My name is Darren R. McClure. I am the person that runs com. The thing that scares me the most about nuclear is no one knows how long forever is. We have to keep putting this stuff into dry casks forever. Forty years of power will never pay for a million years of nuclear waste. I'm Jean Shaw. I'm an artist and an activist with the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition. And I think the thing that scares me the most about nuclear is that it represents, to me, hell boiled over. And if we don't stop letting it boil over since we can't shove it back in like toothpaste. We're doing more to destroy life on Earth than anything else, and how dare we? My name is Lori Hedrick with San Clemente Green. I think what scares me most about nuclear is what we're going to do with all this waste. There really aren't good solutions, um, and it's just piling up all around the country. So it's a should be a top priority for us all to figure out a good solution. Hi, my name is Catherine Skobik. I'm an artist, art educator, and environmentalist. What scares me most about nuclear energy is that we could have an accident at any time, and the spent fuel rods are very difficult to store or dispose of. In fact, next to impossible, as it lasts for thousands of years. So for anyone who cares for this planet... Uh, you could not possibly want to support nuclear energy. And one more thing, in baseball we have three strikes and you're out. We've had Three Mile Island, we've had Chernobyl, and we've had Fukushima. Nuclear is out. My name is Gary Shaw. I'm part of the Leadership Council of the Indian Point Safe Energy Coalition. And what scares me the most about nuclear is it never goes away. Once we're contaminated, it's there forever. My name is Donna Gilmore. I live a few miles from the San Onofre plant. I live in San Clemente. And the thing I'm the most scared about is the high burn of fuel. The high burn of fuel they're using at San Onofre and around the rest of the country 
They have no way to store it, even short term. It's, it's falling apart, and they continue, the NRC continues to, to let them use it. It should be stopped immediately. We could have an explosion because this material is breaking down so fast. And the only reason the NRC is allowing it to use is so the industry can make more profits. But everybody needs to learn about hibernate fuel. And you can go to my website, sananofreesafety.org, and learn everything about high burn-up. And I have found that not even the nuclear experts and a lot of the NRC people that inspect the plants for waste know this information. So this is critical. This could lead to shutting down all new nuclear plants because they all use high burn-up too. That comment from Donna Gilmore, who runs San Onofre Safety, struck such a deep chord in me that I had to follow up with her and find out more about what she found so frightening. She's the one who has initiated us into the nuclear hot seat Halloween nuclear spook house. (laughs) I understand from when I saw you down at the symposium in San Clemente last week that you had a rather frightening exchange with certain members of the NRC over something you knew but they didn't. Could you explain that to us? Yes, I had a meeting with the NRC, kind of a private meeting with just a couple of activists on September 27th. And these were all the nuclear waste experts. They brought about 12, 14 people to the meeting uh, so they could answer all our questions. And when we got on the issue of high burn-up fuel, they didn't seem to know what I thought would be common knowledge at the NRC. They didn't know that there's no approved transportation method for high burn-up fuel. High burn-up fuel is enriched uranium that is allowed to burn in the reactor for a longer period of time than, than previous fuel. They have a measurement at the end of NRC called over 45 gigawatt days per metric ton is how they define it. But the bottom line is this high burn-up fuel that the nuclear plants have been allowed to use for about 16 years is over twice as radioactive as the fuel they used to use and over twice as hot and it's extremely unstable in storage, even short-term, to the point that the NRC will not approve dry cast storage over 20 years for this fuel. They will not approve any transportation method, any transportation cast for this fuel, dry cast. So there's no way to transport the tons of waste at San Onofre and other plants, even if there was a place to send it. The NRC person that was going to be speaking on high burn-up fuel didn't seem to know all this. Well, he didn't know it. And no one else in the room seemed to know it either. If they knew it, they weren't speaking up. Ah! There was a person from Chairman McFarland's office there, and and she asked me to send her some information on the high burn-up that I shared at the meeting with all these NRC nuclear waste people. It just seems kind of surreal that I'm being asked to brief the chairman of the NRC on uh, high burn-up fuel when the whole room was filled with supposedly the experts on this that we're supposed to be dealing with decommissioning and these kind of issues. Now that's scary. Even scarier. On October 19 in San Clemente, California, activists held a community symposium on decommissioning San Onofre. Dr. Donald Mosier, one of the speakers, is both a medical doctor and a Ph.D. He's a member of the Department of Immunology, Scripps Research Institute, and a Del Mar, California, City Council member, as well as an expert on the public health effects of radiation. I've long believed that the reason people aren't more freaked out about the health risks of radiation is because they don't understand it. Don Mosier provided a great explanation, and in keeping with Halloween, it's scary. First, he showed a chart of the progressive risk from exposure to radiation, and the information he used comes from the International Atomic Energy Commission. My apologies for the low sound levels of the live stream audios. 
I will boost them as much as I can. Just listen closely. If you get 10,000 millisieverts, you're dead. If you get 1,000, you're going to get sick or you may get cancer, but you'll survive. More importantly, if you go down this table, maximum radiation levels recorded at Fukushima plant were about 400 millisieverts per hour. That means a two-hour exposure with the approach of a very dangerous lethal level. If you get down to the bottom of this chart, you get into areas where it's supposed to be safe. Right in the middle, it says the lowest annual dose at which any increase in cancer is observed is 100 millisieverts per year. The rest of this talk is going to say that's dead wrong. That's a vast overestimate of what is associated with cancer risk. Next, he goes through and compares the radiation dosage from several common medical treatments. As you go down here, you get into areas of how many millisieverts the body receives when you get a CT scan. And that's generally in the range of somewhere between 20 to 60 millisieverts, and that's thought to be safe, except it's not. And you get way down at the bottom of the list, you get mammograms that are thought to use only 0.4 millisieverts that were thought until recently to be safe, but are not. At the very bottom of the list is a dental x-ray, which is only one five thousandth of a millisievert. How many people in this room have had a dental x-ray? How many people put on a lead apron? Why? Because the dentist has to put on a lead apron because that exposure is thought to be unsafe. So remember the lead apron because that's a very, very low dose of radiation compared to 100 millisieverts. A dental x-ray has a very low dose of radiation and still we wear a lead apron to protect ourselves. Dom then cited a study done on nuclear industry workers in Europe. This first study is a 15-country collaborative study of radiation workers in the nuclear industry. This is a European study that was published in 2007. The important point is that they had over 400,000 nuclear industry workers, and they were followed for an average of 12 years. Okay? When you're exposed to radiation, your chief risk of cancer is 20 to 30 years out. So a 12-year follow-up is really not that long. But because of the large number of individuals followed, they were able to get a significant estimate of mortality associated with increased exposure to radiation. And that's down at the bottom line. That's basically a two-fold increased risk of cancer in these nuclear industry workers. And in that cohort, at the time the study was closed, that dose of radiation accounted for 5,233 extra deaths. And this is a 12-year follow-up. If it were 25-year follow-up, that number would likely double. Five thousand two hundred twenty-three extra deaths after 12 years, and a doubling of that figure to over 10,000 extra deaths if the study had continued for 25 years. So is any radiation dose safe? The answer is no. Exposures of less than 20 millisieverts lead to increased cancer risk. The risk is higher in children and in females. That's because females have more active immune system and more dividing cells. The National Institute of Medicine, the recommendation to abandon mammograms that involve less than one millisievert per year is based on data showing that that exposure increases the risk of breast cancer. So the only conclusion is there is no safe dose radiation. No safe dose of radiation. Ever. <laughs> Scary. Here's another of the speakers from the Symposium on Decommissioning San Onofre, Dr. Marvin Reznikoff. He is a nuclear physicist and a senior associate at Radioactive Waste Management Associates. 
Dr. Reznikoff is an international consultant on radioactive waste issues. Here, Dr. Reznikoff tells us what can happen if there's an accident inside a nuclear reactor. Difficult if there's a potential accident, then it's uh, more likely that fuel will these the fuel cladding will shatter, and uh, the material inside will then uh, get into the canister, and if the accident is severe enough, can also get out into the environment. So I'm very concerned about that aspect of high burn-up fuel, that it has high, highly brittle fuel cladding which can uh, shatter in an accident. Finally, we hear from Dr. Arjun Makijani. He is president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research and an expert on hardened on-site storage of nuclear waste and long-term management of high-level waste. Dr. Makajani began by explaining exactly what's in those nuclear reactor fuel rods. I just want to tell you a little bit of what's inside those fuel rods. So fresh fuel is basically uranium-235, which is what fissions and produces the energy. And that's about 4%. And in a high burn-up fuel, it might be more. In the old days, for low burn-up fuel, it used to be more like 3.3%. So this is a typical case rather than every fuel assembly. Uh, mostly it's uranium-238, which is not fissile. And then it has no fission products and waste and so on. This is natural uranium. And then once you use it up, I think this, although the slide doesn't say it, from memory... This may be 40,000 megawatt days, so it's on the mark, it's approaching high burn-up, but not quite high burn-up. So when you see you've consumed most of the uranium-235, it's produced the energy. Some of the uranium-238 has become plutonium. Some of the plutonium has been consumed to produce energy, uh, but there's still about 1% left. You get a new isotope of uranium from transmutation, about half a percent of that. It makes the used-up uranium kind of not very usable again. Although it has been done, it's not very effective. And the fission products, which is the waste, the highly radioactive part of it is that 4.262%. Almost all the radioactivity comes from that. Ever wonder how radioactive it gets? A curie is a lot of radioactivity. A tiny fraction of a curie can kill you, depending on what it is and how it attacks you. A curie is a 37 billion radioactive disintegrations every second. That's a lot of radioactive disintegration. If you approach a spent fuel assembly with a lot of cesium in it, you will die in short order. If Evil Knievel drove his motorcycle over a spent fuel assembly that had just been taken out of the reactor at 30 or 40,000 megawatt days, at 60 miles an hour across that 12 or 14 feet, he would be dead. The motorcycle would be going by itself before he reached the other end. But what's happening with the strontium-90? Whoa! You do have to worry about strontium-90. Strontium-90 doesn't get into the plume because it, it doesn't evaporate at, at the kind of fire temperatures we're talking about. So it stays in the pellet. But what is happening at Fukushima now is um, that it is being contacted by rain, water, and storms, and typhoons, and so on. And also groundwater is contacting the molten fuel and so is mobilizing the strontium-90. So cesium, once it falls on the soil, doesn't migrate very easily into the groundwater. Strontium-90 is much more mobile in water, so it's mobilized much more, and then it will get into the groundwater faster. And it's also like calcium, so it gets to your bones. And per unit of radioactivity, strontium-90 is much more dangerous than cesium because it targets certain organs. It goes to the bone. Cesium goes all over the body. So strontium-90, normally we don't worry about, we don't see calculations of it, but after Fukushima, I think we should be much more conscious. 
There is a lot more scary stuff about the radioactivity in the fuel rods and all the things we can't do about them. You can catch all that information on the live stream recordings of the October 19 Community Symposium on Decommissioning San Onofre. You'll find the full recording, without added sound effects, at residentsorganizedforasafeenvironment.wordpress.com and we'll also have a link to the YouTube posting on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. I want to express gratitude to the organizing groups that co-sponsored this event, the Sierra Club Angeles Chapter and the Coalition to Decommission San Onofre, which includes the Peace Resource Center of San Diego, San Clemente Green, Women Occupy San Diego, Citizens Oversight Project, org and Residents Organized for a Safe Environment. We'll have the radiation protection tip in just a moment. But first, hey, holiday season's coming up. <sighs> I hate saying that, but hey, it's the truth. So remember Nuclear Hot Seat in your holiday gift giving. As this program gets more popular, my bandwidth charges have been going through the roof, and I need your help to cover the expense. After all, where else can you go to walk your way through a nuclear fright house as well as get updates on all the week's nuclear news, radiation protection tips, activist opportunity, numbnuts of the week, the NRC duck report, plus cheek, snark, and attitude. There are four other dwarves, too. I'll get to them. So give a little, get a little. Go to our website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Scroll down on the homepage and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, know that I am deeply grateful. Here's the week's radiation protection tip. A lot of Internet holistic health mavens have finally jumped on the radiation warning bandwagon. But, of course, not before they got their related product lines up and running in their online stores. Okay, commerce is fine. I'll be engaging in it myself one of these days. But here's the thing. These experts are not including all the information in what they are saying. And some of their products are, shall we say, open to further examination. In particular, there are health gurus who are touting the need for us to take mushroom supplements like reishi. The problem? Mushrooms are bioaccumulators of radiation. For example, BF, before Fukushima, reishi was considered a powerful adaptogen for the immune system and was often used by people who were fighting cancer in holistic ways. Now, I used to love to eat mushrooms, but I haven't had any since shortly after Fukushima. You need to do what you need to do, but whatever you decide... Be conscious about your choices. Activist shout-out. Hey there, Myla Reason. Myla has been creating a great series of videos. I'll have one of her latest, Nuke Fuel Pool Roulette. Try saying that five times real fast. Nuke Fuel Pool Roulette. Okay, you do it. Anyway, this is one of her most recent ones, and it will be posted on nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. Be sure to check out Myla's YouTube channel as well. Her name is spelled M-Y-L-A space R-E-S-O-N. That's all you need to find her on YouTube. Lots of anti-nuclear goodies there. I am still looking for contacts to John Stewart so that I can be the nuclear pundit for The Daily Show, or if he doesn't want me on, he can take my material and pay me really well for it. So if you know someone who can help me get together with John, send your leads to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Here's today's final thought. Many of us have held out the hope that the fabled lost formula of Dr. Radha Roy, the Roy process, would be able to transmute nuclear waste into something benign that we could live with without damaging our lives. It was the magic bullet that would cure the scourge of radioactivity and the mutational danger that it does to our genetic future. 
at the San Onofre Symposium on Nuclear Waste, I took the opportunity to ask Arjun Makhijani my bottom line question. Bibi Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat. I'm wondering if going back to the issue of neutralizing the radioactive waste, is there any familiarity, at least with the rumors, of the Roy method by Dr. Rothschild Roy for knocking the neutrons off? And what do you see as the feasibility of that should the formula either be discovered, rediscovered, or uh, recreated? To the, I, I've looked at this to some extent, but to the extent that I have understood it, it involves what is called phototransmutation. If you shoot very um, high-energy photons, particles of light or radiation, at radioactive materials, you can transmute them. You can knock out a neutron. The trouble is uh, you can convert short-lived ones into long-lived ones and long-lived ones into short-lived ones all by the same process. In order to just do the long-lived ones into short-lived ones, you have to first separate them. So, for example, you need to separate out the cesium-135 from all the other cesium, from the cesium-137. This is essentially impossible to do. It's, it's very, very difficult. I mean, in theory, you could do it, but in practice, you can't. And then you have to package this stuff. And it's just essentially a nuclear reactor. It's a nuclear reactor in the form of an accelerator. And you create vast new amounts of radioactive waste when you do that. And you require separation. So you're going to separate the plutonium. You create proliferation risks when you do that. I'm, I'm completely against the separation of plutonium from spent fuel. And one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, I am against nuclear power is we're making 30 bombs worth of plutonium in every reactor of 1,000 megawatts every year. And the main danger is if we separate it. That's why spent fuel, in a way, is the safest form for this nuclear waste because the plutonium is locked up in all that other radioactive material. And if you approach it, you will die. And so you can't get at the plutonium easily the way it is. I think we should leave it that way. So there you have it. The Roy process, for which so many of us held out so much hope, is apparently not a solution to the eternal problems of what to do with nuclear waste. So what is? A time machine? A wormhole to another dimension? Benign aliens with advanced technology landing in time to clean up our mess? We have nothing. The radioactive toxins we have already created will live out their natural lives, which will far outlive any natural life humanity ever imagined for itself. We're stuck with this shit and making more of it every day. This is the definition of insanity. And that's got to be the scariest piece of all. Happy Dia de los Muertos. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 29, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com. Thank you so much, Grant, for all you do. Fukushima Diary and our friend Iori Mochizuki. Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education. New York Times, The Guardian, Keystone, Associated Press, The Atlantic, GG Press, BBC News, Voice of Russia, Asahi, Hokkaido Shimbun, The Letter Sent to the Honorable Banji Moon, Secretary General of the United Nations, Irrawaddy.org, Coast to Coast AM, The Nuclear Energy Institute and World Nuclear Association, ABC 22 News in Vermont, Radcast, Mimi German, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Love you guys. The Nuclear Hot Seat theme song is performed by Marilyn Lee Weaver. Looks like Weber, pronounced like Weaver. Our archive is available at iTunes or at nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. Comment on the website or at Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but I do allow fair use, as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, 
reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. We did it. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.